yeah these this is a photo litho print and like monotyped as well um uh from uh, i want to say like 2016 2017 2016 i think i don't know um what i have done is i made a orange juice carton um and on the side i put a missing ad for um palestine um and it says have you seen this culture and um i go on to describe it um it says name palestine it says date of cultural abduction Abduction, yeah um 1948 to present oh yeah that's easier to read um yeah the other panel of the um uh print or of the orange juice carton it says colonial narrative perishable keep refrigerated um and then it says 100 percent juice not from concentrated acts of genocide (laughs) um so that was just kind of like a sassy print that i made um both sides of my family like um owned orange groves um so that symbol comes up in my work a lot um i now sort of like um i would say like constantly i'm like shriveling citrus fruits all the time i don't know why i do this i have like so many um like shriveled like yeah like i'm doing it right now like on my windowsill (laughs) you can see it over there like i just keep doing it i don't know why like i like how they look basically is why um um, and I, I use it as a symbol in my work as well. It just comes up um, a lot, yeah. Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weaponry to strike a blow against injustice in the world. Welcome back to Weapon of Choice Podcast, everybody. I'm Tommy Franklin. And I'm Andrew Benda. It is great to have everybody back. Uh, We are back in the studio. We've got a series of interviews that we've been sitting on. This one um, is coming to you, actually. We interviewed Lemia back in beginning, was it end of September? Yeah, it was, I don't know. It was still warm. I know that. It was still warm. It wasn't snowing. So anyway, we've got a few episodes in the bank here. We're going to be rolling them out really quick, and we're uh, really excited to be bringing them all to you. We're especially excited for this episode. We had this great conversation. Lemia is a Palestinian-American artist based in Minneapolis. She uses her interdisciplinary research-based practice as a platform to challenge harmful dominant narratives which perpetuate acts of violence and ethnic cleansing in Palestine and the Middle East. Currently, Lemia is a 2018-2019 Jerome Emerging Printmaking resident at High Point Center for Printmaking. We talk about her current work, her past work, and so much more. So right. without further ado, we had such a pleasure and honor talking to Lemia. So let's get into that. My name is Lemia Abukadra. Um, I'm a Palestinian American artist based in Minneapolis. Well, thank you, Lemia, for joining us on Weapon of Choice podcast. We're so glad you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. What 
is your weapon of choice or weapons of choice? And what battles are you fighting? Um, I think it's funny that you ask that question because I, um, I sometimes talk about my practice as uh, dismantling um, harmful dominant narratives um, that perpetuate genocide um, and colonialism against Palestinian people and overall in the Middle East. And um, there's a term that I learned from um, Larissa Sansour's uh, film. Um, I think it's called... um, in the future they ate from the finest porcelain or something and she calls herself a narrative terrorist and i've i'm really latched on to that um sort of uh terminology and i do a lot of sort of evidence-based or research-based um art and sometimes i call my pieces weaponized evidence yeah (laughs) so can you tell uh you know how do you how do you sharpen those weapons? Like what tools are you using to make those weapons effective? Um, so I guess we can get into sort of more specific. So um, my most recent sort of body of work is about um, a, like it started off with uh, me finding a picture of um, the like, a faction of an Israeli militia um, stealing my family's house in um, a village in Palestine. Um, And it's like unequivocally my family's house because it's a very like, uh, it's a very distinct sort of look. There's a distinct look to this house. Um, Mm. They're wearing um, fezes on their head, which I immediately checked. Um, and they like that's not a part of this militia's uniform. So they've stolen these fezes from my grandfather's house or great grandfather's great grandfather and great great grandfather. <laughs> um, so what starts off um, that sort of started me off into looking into sort of all of the facets of this event. Um, and so how I I sharpen like sort of the weapons or I guess the weapons here is um, I recreate started recreating artifacts and documents and um, uh, whatever else like started abstracting like what even like artifacts and evidence even was but mm-hmm. um, I, I sharpen those weapons with research I would mm-hmm. say yeah <laughs> yeah how did you find that photo? Like, um, it's kind of crazy. Like I, a lot of the times my bodies of work start by accident when I'm just kind of researching general events. Um, so I knew that my um, family's house had been stolen. I was just kind of curious. Um, I, my, um, I come from like a few pretty prominent families in Palestine. So um, uh, it's like not super hard to like find their names if you just google like Abu Qadra Palestine or like um, Taji Palestine and you can start finding like a few things um, related to that so um, with like I had already found like like there's I think like a blog dedicated to like old photos and a lot of like they're within this town like there are a lot of 
photos of my family and their property. So I just kind of was really excited about that. That was from a Palestinian blog. And then I sort of had the idea to um, reverse image search, um, just a picture of one of the houses to see oh, like, I wonder if I could find other Palestinian blogs. It hadn't really come across that um, any, like, I hadn't even thought about, like, Israeli blogs, Israeli archives, like, any of that, because I don't speak Hebrew, so I wouldn't even know how to, like, begin. Um, but so I reverse image searched um, just a picture of this house, and it, like, like a couple of photos popped up that I'd never seen before. Um, and yeah, I, I'd never seen them. And they were of these men who like were in uniform or in Jeeps in front of this house that I knew was mine or like my family's because it's like these arches. It's like a white house. It has these very distinct arches. Um, and you can just tell. Um, so yeah, I like mm. stumbled across those, started looking at the blogs and translating them. And it was like, a militia and I was like, what the hell? Like, yeah. 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 So that's how it started. <laughs> Did you enjoy or have a, like a knack, a natural knack for research early on in your life? Or I have always been a big history nerd. Um, in high school, I, um, was really into like my favorite class was AP US history. Like I loved that class. Cause I could sort of, I had also like an amazing teacher because we were looking at history critically. Um, so mm -hmm. I've always really been interested in looking at history critically and like um, like using and making sort of like synthesizing connections and making connections um, in history. So mm. yeah, I would say I've always been interested in research and history. How old were you? Can you pinpoint <laughs> a particular age when you realized you're not normal? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think it like these things become apparent when you're like in middle school, I would say, like when you're I don't know. I've always been very like a big bookworm and into books. And that was like fine through middle school. And then, you know, like the factions of cool kids start coming out. And like um, that's when I realized that I hadn't I wasn't necessarily like interested in the same things as all the cool kids. Um, and I also wasn't like, a, like, you know, coming from a, a brown family, like not necessarily allowed to do all of the things that um, these kids could do. So I couldn't go like have sleepovers or whatever until I like fought and fought and fought. <laughs> and like, um, like I think I was 13 when I had my first sleepover. So like, um, I think that's when it became apparent. Um, but I didn't really like, embrace my not normal like really into reading and research until like end of high school and even like really mid um like undergrad I would say yeah but why you you realize this around age you know middle school perhaps 13 <laughs> but you didn't embrace it till later why why not um I think it's like it's hard to be sort of like a super smart brown girl in the Midwest sometimes like um like I don't I don't know like I think like friendships were hard to keep a long time for a lot or like I didn't I didn't have like a lot of brown friends until I started um college um so 
yeah, I I think it was hard for me to embrace like me being interested in like these histories all the way because nobody else around me was super interested in that. Um, and I didn't want to alienate myself. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I got to undergrad and they're like, like there were classes dedicated to exactly what I'm interested in, which is like, you know, Palestinian history, Palestinian lit, Middle Eastern, like literature, Orientalism, all of that. Um, like, and that really like sort of showed me like, it's actually really cool to like be really specialized and interested in a, and mm -hmm. then history or a field or whatever. Yeah. Mm. And and so when did the art and the storytelling start to like, mm. um, really take over the, <laughs> the picture or, um, when did it really start to flood in or was it always there? Um, you know, I thought I was going to be a lawyer until I got to college. So, yeah. <laughs> um, which is funny, I guess, cause I am not, that at all right now um or not even close to um that field but um I sort of fell into art by accident like I had sort of always been interested in art classes but didn't take it super seriously just because everyone around me was like that's not a money-making <laughs> thing to be in so don't do that um but um, I think I started in art sort of just by kind of by chance being enrolled in a ceramics class in high school. And then I got pulled into a big mural project in high school. And um, I went to South High and they have a lot of like mural projects that go on in the summers there. So I got pulled into one of those um, and that sort of brought my interest to art, but I wasn't really sure about it until I got to like undergrad and I, like I was really encouraged. I'd sort of started taking art as like, oh, maybe I'll minor, maybe I'll like, you know, do this on the side while I'm like an mm -hmm. urban studies major or law person or whatever. Um, <laughs> and like pretty much after my first semester, I was like, okay, I'm gonna be an artist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And that, how, you know, what what does that do for your soul to like wake up, start to wake up every morning knowing what you love, what you want to pursue? Um, it's like super fulfilling on the one hand because I'm doing what I love. I'm, you know, making time to um, research things that I'm super interested in, um, and I'm also being recognized for it. Like I'm, I'm, and people want to work with me and talk to me about it, which is super exciting for like I'm only 22. So, you know, like, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm feeling so like happy and loved, but it's also like, there's some pressure like to like, I have to prove that this is like important. I have to prove that I'm like gonna pursue this, that I am gonna keep working on this. Like all the time, it's very self-directed. Um, and it's like very much about like, I would say, sort of hustling and self-promotion too so mm -hmm. like yeah there's like a lot of pressure and also like i love it so i'm never gonna stop <laughs> yeah uh, you said prove that this is important um you know what what's what's that journey been like being in the midwest um i guess minnesota and minneapolis is like a fairly like 
they uh, I would say like a very supportive environment in terms of art creation. Um, I like come from a family where nobody is an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the big black sheep <laughs> in my family. Um, everybody else is in like finance. <laughs> um, so yeah. Um, yeah, I think like, I mean, I I have to prove sort of to a lot of the people that I love that like art is a really cool career that I can pursue. And I also, um, have to prove to sort of yeah the midwest community that like this narrative like which is a very niche sort of like this specific like moment in palestinian history or like this like Mm -hmm. this um or these stories are um are important and like important to think about and um like interrogate um in your everyday as well yeah what has been the reception from your family? Cause a lot of your work does has been so, I mean that, that piece that you were talking about literally about your family's old house, right? What's been their reception to it? Like, um, has it been a validation? Yeah, I, yeah. My family is super supportive and super proud of me. Um, uh, I think like they don't necessarily like follow all of the conceptualism that I get into all the time, which is totally fine. Cause that's, yeah that there are different levels that you can get into with my work. Um, yeah, I would say there's like super supportive and, um, excited that they have like passed on, um, to a, a person in the younger generation, like a hunger to like, you know, talk about the Palestinian story, talk about, um, injustices against Palestinians. Um, and like someone who's very interested in, you know, promoting her culture and history. All of the pieces in the body of work that I was just talking about, um, the I titled the body of work, um, You Sat at the Fountain While You Stole the House on the Hill. So the that directly relates to the image that I found of the militia. They're all sitting at the fountain in front of this house that I know to be my family's. Um, and it's, uh, I once I started translating these blogs, um, um, which the way that they described the house, which is super strange, like a couple of times on a couple of different blogs, they called it the house on the hill. And they sort of talked about it as, um, when, when they talked about the house on the hill, they would talk about how this militia liberated it. Um, which is mm-hmm. interesting because I don't really know what they liberated it from. Cause people just lived there. Um, right. yeah. Um, so I, um, I made um, a connected body of work to like correspond to this image and to respond to this image. Um, So um, the first thing that I made was an artist book um, and it is titled you sat at the fountain while you stole the house on the hill. Um, And I start diagramming out like who, like the first page is a diagram of these soldiers sitting on like, I don't actually ever provide the image in any of this body of work. Like you just have to take my word for it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, But so the first page of this book is a diagram, which is just a line drawing of this um, image. Um, And I start sort of labeling things um, in that are significant in the, um, 
in this image that I found. So like the fezes on the top of the soldier's head, it's labeled both as like a fez and a trophy. And then mm. um, there's some sort of descriptive language that I don't quite remember off the top of my head. Um, uh, same with like um, the arches. Um, the, the house is like the way that I knew for sure that it was my family's house was like, it's white and there are arches. And so I, you know, I don't quite remember. I think I said like, Taji house, house on the hill, you would know the arches anywhere. I started getting into what type of guns they were most likely to carry, researched those and figured out which battalion in the militia they would have most likely belonged to. So it was the 52nd Battalion of the Haganah Givati Brigade. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, yeah, I went really deep into research. But um, so then I looked into what guns they would have most likely carried. Um, and um, one of them was the FN Model D. Um, and I labeled the guns as such. Um, and so, um, yeah, so like throughout that book, I play with like information versus um, sort of this like poetic narrative that's also there. Um, and uh, I intersperse like family photos um, mm -hmm. where my family is sitting in front of this house as well. So um, and so throughout the body of work, most of it corresponds to this artist book and to that main image that I've found. So um, I, out of ceramic, made a fez and I display it and I label it as a trophy. Um, <laughs> and uh, I also made the FN Model D gun to scale in ceramic. Um, and I labeled it both as an FN Model D and as something um, <clears throat> that is tenderly held. Um, I also remade the bullets that would have um, been used <laughs> in that gun, and they're displayed directly beneath um, this gun. Um, I found the D, like the like information that would have filled out a deed to this house, and um, re like found what deeds looked like in the 1930s in Palestine, and. Um, recreated the deeds. Um, what else did I do? Oh, I made, I remade our fine china, um, but I cast a porcelain plate in paper. Um, so I, yeah, and made a few paper plates out of what was originally a a porcelain plate. <laughs> um, and like you have fun doing some yeah, stuff. Yeah, so what I, yeah, I like to play with like reality too a lot in my work. So like um, none of the objects in my body of work would be made out of the things that they're supposed to be made out of. Um, so, you know, fine china is actually paper plates, whereas the silverware that goes with it is ceramic. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Yeah, like, um, uh yeah, you know, the the gun and the hat are both ceramic. Um, bad badges, I found um, badges um, that the Givati Brigade would have most likely used or like worn on their uniforms. Um, I found those on a war memorabilia site for sale and they were only $100, so I could have bought them. Um, but 
then I would have had to like give money to this horrible war memorabilia site. So (laughs) I decided to just rip them off and make the badges myself. Um, And I made them out of paper. Yeah. So, (laughs) yeah. And I label my work um, with Sharpie, like on the walls. (laughs) Um, And um, I do, the labels that I give my work are not necessarily enlightening. Um, They're usually like more poetic didactics Mm -hmm. um so you know like this fez is just labeled as trophy um you know um the uh i don't think the silverware is even labeled as anything it's just sort of like um like there's this story that my grandma tells me um where like she always lists off like the things that they took from the house while they were like leaving really quickly um so and that included like this typewriter, the electric fan, the silverware, and like some coats because they thought they were going to come back like next week. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So they left most everything else behind. Um, So I just put that line to label um, the silverware. So, Mm. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) How how important is physicality, the physical nature in your pieces? How do you tap into... um, these five senses and beyond with your work like what form they physically or what they're physically made out of is like important to me i like sort of like uh you know turning that out that on its head or like making you know um there is a piece in that body of work called do you want the deed to my house i have it in every form where it's like three deeds that are filled out in sort of poetic ways and they're hung up and then underneath them is a crumpled up deed cast in um, porcelain and then some just like shriveled up oranges um, because my family had orange groves and um, a crumpled up deed that's um, preserved in beeswax. And all of these deeds are sort of preserved in certain ways or like shellacked or beeswaxed or, you know, in porcelain. Um, Mm -hmm. Um, so I like to play around with that. Um, and this all sort of like my idea of like what, um, these sort of physical nature that my pieces take, um, comes from, um, this theory of critical fabulation, which I'm really interested in. Um, so this is from Saidia Hartman. Um, and she's this really, really amazing, um, you know, theorist. I think she's based in out of Yale, but she um, wrote this amazing, amazing uh, essay called Venus in Two Acts, which basically alleges that um, I'm really into archives. So um, she she's also really into archives, but she talks about it um, in terms of how enslaved women um, will never ever be like properly represented in the archive because archives are made by and for people who like by and for the people who enslave like so this sort of um and then she goes on to say like as a subjugated people like you're never going to have the historical tools to really talk about your history in like a deep way because archives don't have that they have like numbers that people who enslave you would find useful or like records of violence and that's it Mm -hmm. Um, so she says that in order to sort of deepen stories about 
enslaved women, you have to sort of critically read the archive or history surrounding that archive and um, uh, sort of make up tender moments or make up things that not necessarily connect the dots, but just make the stories richer. Um, So I took that um, into consideration when I started researching my stories and Mm -hmm. like um, Palestinian stories in general, because, you know, I am lucky to come from prominent families and I do have a little bit to go on, but there's not that much out there. So like, I do have to use my imagination and try and connect the dots or like make stuff up and like abstract things a little bit. Um, So I would say like in terms of physicality, like I'm, you know, I, with all of the senses, I'm trying to like, like question, like, you know, like these facts or like um, narratives um, that come, come off as, um, dominant and represent Palestinian narratives, um, that don't necessarily do them justice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, not necessarily trying to prove anything because I don't have access to the facts or, Mm -hmm. and I probably never will, but like, I, I know like that these things like more than likely did happen or like, Mm yeah. Do you go home? Um, to Palestine, I have never been, (laughs) it's really, um, it's really hard. Um, I have a lot of friends who have been turned away at the border and given bans for being like mildly outspoken Palestinians. Um, yeah. So like, but my friend, my close friend, Leila Wadala just got in, was able to do like a month-long residency there. So, like, I do have plans to go at some point or at least try. Um, but, like, yeah, there's a lot of, like, mental preparation you have to do. Um, like, mm. it's very, it's a very real possibility that I will be interrogated at the border for, like, several hours um, and then maybe just turned away and banned for however long. Like, I don't know. Mm. Um So, yeah, like I've always wanted to go, but there's definitely a fear Mm -hmm. of how traumatic that return will be. Um, Yeah. And then like some of these houses I know are still standing, so I could go and find them and, you know, sort of coming to terms with how traumatic seeing that will be as well. Like I really want to go to Palestine and see it, but I also like am scared of how like, like angry and traumatized I'm going to be afterwards. So I don't know. Yeah. I'm going to (laughs) go. That's real. Yeah. That's real. And you grew up in Minneapolis. Uh, Yeah. I've lived here my whole life. Yeah. Uh, Parents around. Yeah. My parents live six blocks away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they, they, they they were like, when can we like, can we help you move when you tell them you were moving? (laughs) Um, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. They like have, basically made it like a necessity that I live within like a mile from them at all times, <laughs> you know, they're overprotective. <laughs> um, you know, at least they let me move out, you know? Um, so you have any siblings? I do. I have one younger sister. Her name is Nora. Um, yeah. Are y'all, are y'all much alike or different? No, we're like the opposite. 
Um, she is not an artist at all, but um, she's really interested in um, social issues, but more so from like a sociological point of view or like she she might become the lawyer in the family <laughs> that mm. yeah that i didn't become mm. i just want to jump back to uh audience reception again and, and ask um if or what were some of the most memorable responses that you got when you were um showcasing your work or, or showing it um whether that be to family or to you know in a gallery yeah um I've gotten a lot of positive response. I think the more that I gain sort of like recognition or like am more so in the public lens, um, the larger the um, the chance that there's going to be some serious backlash against my work. Um, I haven't experienced that too much yet. But um, I think a lot of the memorable moments are like when my grandma, who's told me a lot of these stories or, you know, sparked my interest in these things. Um, she sees my work and is always so happy and so proud and overwhelmed. And sometimes like she cries and it's super cute. Um, (laughs) yeah. So that's always like an amazing moment for me to see that I'm, um, making her proud and, you know, doing right by like her stories and her narratives. Um, yeah. Um, I think like the only negative response I've gotten was like a really small accusation of anti-Semitism one time, Mm. which, um, you know, there's as soon as you start sort of criticizing Israel or Zionism, um, the question of anti-Semitism starts coming up. Um, and just to be clear, like criticizing Israel and anti-Semitism and anti and being anti-Zionist is not anti-Semitic. It's just criticizing a state that is horrible to people and is perpetuating genocide against people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> is there in your grandma where is she? She also lives like three blocks away from me. <laughs> yeah, she lives like just like three blocks that way. <laughs> Was she the one like how did uh you said she kind of lit the spark of some of this. How, how did that, um, what did that look like growing up? Um, yeah, I grew up in a household that is like very unapologetically Palestinian. Um, we, like I've always gone to sort of cultural events. Um, um, my mom has started educated, educating me about my heritage pretty much since I can remember. And then, my grandma will always sort of talk about the old days um, and what she remembers of Palestine because she left when she was like probably like eight or nine, pro- mm. you know, like it's not like she has really concrete memories of what home is either. Um, mm. But like, um, yeah, she like she's just got a really good memory for what her parents told her mm. um, about Palestine as well and like yeah she just always brings it up and I am always like able to interview her and she's like always giving me books about Palestine too she just dropped off a book um about ethnic cleansing in Palestine like um last week I think and um 
I've, I have like a stack of books over there from that I used to research that my mom and my grandma have given like given me some of those too. Yeah. Did you, did you used to have like <laughs> things you wish you got for your birthday and then you get books? <laughs> you know, I was always really excited to get books. <laughs> um, I'm that kid. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you learned to love to read at a very early age. Yeah, I've always been a big bookworm. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. I think it started with like Harry Potter, which I'm sure is a very cliche sort of thing to say. <laughs> I think a lot of people started with that. Um, but um, yeah, it's it just grow. It It's grown to be like any any type of. I love like Earl Grey tea and books. Yep, Earl Grey tea and books. Yeah, that's all that I do. (laughs) (laughs) You said you're you're wondering how reception might become. Perhaps if you become well, when you become more recognized, (laughs) and perhaps if you create a particular piece, have you already created any particular pieces, or there are some like ideas, things in your back of the mind that, frankly, scare the shit out of you to explore? Hmm. Um, yeah, I was a little, um, last year I did, um, this public arts project called The Wall, um, where we literally, Layla, Awadala, and I built a border wall, um, in a public area, and I was, like, pretty nervous about that, um, and the reception of that, um, and I had to negotiate it a lot like with the public um to even let it be built or to have that land um so like yeah um that like we I don't think we got like publicly critiqued too much but like um the landowner who owns that like particular spot in Prospect Park like didn't read our proposal and then like the day before we were supposed to start building the wall um he called me and was like I don't think you should do this and I was like anxiety um (laughs) what do you mean like we proposed this to you like a week like you know like three weeks ago and we already paid you the rent like what are you talking about um and I had to sort of re sort of structure what we were talking about um to him necessarily and Uh talk about the wall as a symbol of unity and how communities can bring down walls together (laughs) um but um yeah that project was about like how walls interrupt spaces and like are super violent (laughs) um and like horrible and also absurd um Mm -hmm. and we were very publicly critiquing like walls both in like the proposed wall in u.s mexico and the apartheid wall in between israel and palestine um and other sort of border walls around the world um but yeah like there's a lot of negotiating you have to do Mm -hmm. (laughs) um um, but it happened it was very successful it was awesome (laughs) were you nervous that day because i mean you're out in the open you're in the public yeah and you know we're in a time where they're like, I mean, the crazy- it was up for like three weeks. Yeah. You, um, you I was know. nervous that whole time. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> Man, we're in a time where people are just gung ho about showing their true colors. Yeah. And they don't favor people who look like us. Yeah. Know? Um, at one point we had hired some 
local graffiti artists to sort of do what they wanted with the wall. Um, and one of them made a really cool mural that was up for like just a couple days. Um, that was like, I think it said like fuck fascism or something. Um, and it was huge and amazing. Um, and, but I think some like, I, yeah, we were like worried that some fascists like got a hold of, um, that, um, like pictures of that or something, because he said that while he was painting the mural, like a couple of like weird white dudes would ask him, like come up and ask him questions. Um, but nothing ever came of that. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah scary. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're 22 years old. <laughs> How do you compartmentalize your creative ideas, let alone your general thoughts? Like, it seems like you're already creating so much. Like, do you ever struggle with any anxiety to, you know, ha- you know, take this idea and say I need to work on this or wait, like shifting? Do you, do all you the struggle? Time. Like, yeah, like it's like you're day? reading my mind. Yeah, all the time. I'm like, I'm all, you know, I, I'm 22, but I also often like think about myself or like I'm told that I like think about myself and criticize myself as if I'm like 30 year old. Um um, I just like have a lot of ideas and I want to put them all out into the world. And I have to tell myself that it's fine and I need to like slow down so that my ideas are like when I put them out are fully fleshed. Um, yeah. When you wake up or go to sleep, <laughs> do you feel blessed that you have so many ideas? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah, I love it. Um, I have to write them all down in my sketchbook and come back to them later. Um, yeah, I'm like, I, I'm so excited to have all these ideas all the time, but it's also like, you know, again, like the blessing and the curse, like, oh, I have to get all of these ideas funded somehow. Yeah, or like, yeah. you know, like I have to figure out how to like make these ideas happen now. Um, with that process of you know sketching something getting an idea down on paper and then coming back to it when you come back to many of these ideas how do you decide whether to pick it up or leave it there or get rid of it um i don't know um i like some of these ideas it i like have very strong visions for things Mm -hmm. um and i can write them down and Um, sometimes I forget about them. And then if I come back to them when I'm flipping through a sketchbook and the vision is very like just as As strong, strong. like it usually means that that's, that's a good idea. And I should probably like pick that back up. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I just had that like last week when I was uh, flipping through an old sketchbook and I was like, Oh, like Mm. I forgot about this. Like I have to, I am a genius. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I have to figure out how to do this at some point. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, what, what are some of the the hurdles, either personally or systemically, to um, making some of these ideas a reality? Um, time. <laughs> um, um, systemically, like you know, there's there's lots of funding here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for ideas um but that means you have to spend a lot of time writing grants 
Um, so yeah, I don't really have a disposable income to like, you know, spend on a certain project all the time. Um, so, and with those grants come like stipulations. So, you know, some of the ideas that I have, I don't necessarily like want to involve the public, like in all of the processes that I engage in. Um, but a lot of the grants that exist out there, like do stipulate like public engagement on some level, which is like great. It's just like another hurdle of, and public engagement requires a lot of logistical sort of work. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Personal hurdles. Like, yeah, I'm like, pretty self-critical <laughs> so um learning to like be okay with imperfections and um experimentation um and not necessarily like like producing like a perfect thing is something that I'm working on right now um but it's like definitely a challenge um as like a young person a 22 year old who's sort of like you know, I just got the high point Jerome thing. So that's like a pretty public thing. People are typically like watching me work in the studio there. Um, mm. So like, you know, it feels hard to like let myself mess up or like, you know, like mm -hmm. fuck around when, oh. yeah, like yeah, when yeah. people are like watching me, like we're having critiques with like huge printmakers who are coming in from like Chicago and around the town like it feels like yeah like I would yeah does it get exhausting it yeah. does de definitely like I was just talking to a friend of mine who you know won a pretty big award for sculpture recently and she was like I she just moved to Berlin like last like yesterday I think but um yeah like she was like, I can't wait to go to Berlin where I'm anonymous again and nobody cares about me and what I do because like it's it's exhausting to like keep producing like high like to keep being high performing like this. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't know. Like I I really like I'm so grateful for like all the opportunities that I have. Um, but yeah, I'm like always like i have to perform and i have to yeah deliver so people hear the word colonialism uh -huh. and it's so often acknowledged as a historical context <laughs> for example u.s slavery 250 years segregation 90 years and only what 60 something years on of quote-unquote freedom uh-huh <laughs> so how do we refresh people's memories that colonial colonialism all around the world is alive and well well yeah uh you just said it. It's very much alive and well. Um, you know, even when it's quote unquote over in the US, like it's not over because colonialism and white supremacy is very embedded in our institutions, which affect everybody every day. It um, you know, it and it can affect like political institutions, your educational institutions. Um, you know, it's it's everywhere in the U.S. And it's also still very much happening in Palestine. Like colonialism is happening right now. People are literally settling land that doesn't belong to them and building like, you know, cookie cutter houses and just 
claiming, you know, cutting down trees, stealing people's homes. That's happening right now, like in Palestine, Israel. Um, so colonialism is very much not over. It's alive <laughs> and mm. well. <laughs> yeah. And maybe talk about your uh, native terrorism print in that regard. Oh, yeah. So narrative terrorism. Um, that was one that I made. Oh, like that two years ago. Um, yeah, that was um, a lithograph, um, which is this sort of magical way to print off of stone. Um, but I started thinking about, I think like my professor who I love, Edie Overturf, um, she gave us the prompt of value, I think. Um, and I started thinking about how, like, I came across these images in another class of, like, um, these staged photograph or postcards that French colonists would use and send to each other. Um, and they would stage these super, super Orientalist mm. photographs in with, like, Algerian, um, people. Um, and they were super hypersexualized. Um, uh, didn't necessarily like portray real life in Algeria at all um, and objectified women and men um, generally devaluing the like Algerian body there. Um, and then I came across this other, like the famous sort of Abu Ghraib, Abu Ghraib image um, from the Iraqi prison um, that the U.S. ran where they like tortured Iraqi um, people um, and how that sort of translates like that image is like the epitome of like the devalued human body and the devalued air body there. Um, so like I sort of juxtapose those images because one is very romantic and the other one is like highly, highly violent. <laughs> you want to describe yeah. A little bit more of that image? Yeah. Um, so with the romantic one, there's like, um, I think just like a woman super dressed up and bejeweled serving tea to a guy and like the typical sort of Arab um, <laughs> dress with like, um, uh, you know, just like how you would, the stereotypical, like how you would think like an Arab man would dress. Um, and the the Abu Ghraib um image is a man who's meant who's told to stand I think on a box and he has he's been told to put his arms out um uh and uh he his arms are attached to electrical wires I believe um so he's in the process of being like electrocuted and tortured um so and I sort of like those are both very violent um, images and they both like those images and the narrative surrounding those images are both equally violent because they both perpetuate like violence against Arab people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Colonialism is alive and well. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so the way the way you've you know the way you make research in art form 
literally, figuratively, um, the way you love research and and pulling out histories that they weren't teaching any of us in high school for the <laughs> most part. Um, you know, we've been seeing movements break out and have their moments and maybe wake up the world in a little bit. And then after a period, most of the world is undecided about that new movement. Then they, then they really begin to Those speak stories out. stories have equal sides. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like- <laughs> and then eventually the world begins to speak out and resist in a more widespread way, socially, especially with mm-hmm. social media, right? In their own way, each country or, or, or you know, um, geography or what have you. So in more recent years, this happened with Black Lives Matter. Right. Then the pipelines. Right. Now Me Too. Mm-hmm. What movement do you hope or wish to go global in that way? Um, oh, that's hard to choose. I don't know. Like, or movements. <laughs> but yeah, there's a few. Like, I mean, there's all, there are so many. Like, you know, it would be great if like capitalism fell soon, but like, <laughs> um, Angela Davis at yeah. the end of her speech <laughs> yeah. saying, Down with capitalism. Exactly. Yeah. That was <laughs> iconic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, uh, I guess since we're talking about it so much, I, you know, would love to see the Palestinian movement and the boycott, divest sanctions movement um, associated with that, like go global. And it is it's doing like boycott, divest san- sanctions is like, you know, gaining traction every day. Um, it is really I would love to see, you know, those mm-hmm. movements really take a stand but like or they are taking a stand or sort of like really um yeah gain a lot of power and traction um but it's it's very dangerous to also support those movements right now too like i don't know if you guys have heard of the website canary mission or like um so canary mission is this website dedicated to blacklisting um people who support Palestine, Palestinian liberation, and specifically the boycott divest sanctions movement. Um, and it's directly like targets students. Um, a lot of my friends are on that website. <laughs> um, and also professors. And if mm. you are on that list, you are labeled as an anti-Semite. You are labeled as um someone who is dangerous to um, the Israeli state. So they most likely will not ever let you in to see Palestine. Um, and you are hara- You can be harassed publicly on social media. Um, you can be um, targeted. Um, you, like some schools um, will like go after students um, who you know, really support Palestinian liberation. Um, and, um, you know, um, so that's sort of one dangerous facet. Um, and recently they have started conflating, um, people who end up on Canary Mission with people who are also like, um, white supremacists or like, you know, supremacists in general. Um, so they've added like a few white supremacists to that list. (laughs) So they, you know, it's like a really shitty, sneaky way of like conflating people who are actually fighting against these horrible, horrible injustices with like, like 
with white supremacists or like people who like want to see all people of color like perish. <laughs> um, it's wild. Um, so yeah. Wild and disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> and that, and that kind of goes into what, what you were saying about the erasure of even um, the attempts to start historically archiving and collecting these Well, things. yeah, like who has, who, like this is, again, what my body of work comes back to is like, I'm addressing like who has the power over this narrative. Like clearly, like even once you get into like, like archives, like, there are very few like Palestine like Palestinian archives that exist. All of the like evidence that Palestinians existed, or even like um, like what happened during the nineteen forty eight sort of Nakba and the beginning of the occupation, all of that narrative is owned and like archived in by the Israeli state. Um, so like you know who owns that narrative? the Israeli state does uh, until like Palestinian people start fighting back and um, as they have done like throughout history um, orally or with their own pictures or, you know, with like their own sort of definitions of evidence. Um, so like, and also with the critical reading of what sits in like an Israeli archive mm -hmm. um, because like I came, you know, I, in my research, I, I read a few sort of, um, articles about how like they, um, the way that they describe, like even the way that they label pictures and describe pictures in Israeli archives are like wildly, like not factual at all. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so for like, there's an example that I use like in a paper that I wrote a while ago, but, um, this image you look at this image and it's sort of strange like there's a group of palestinians digging um but there are soldiers all around them um and what the label says is that um palestinian people are like harvesting field or no it doesn't even say palestinian people it says arab civilians are harvesting fields so first and foremost we're not recognizing that palestinians exist because they don't of course yeah. <laughs> um they're arab civilians they're harvesting a field so what these historians then did well like first you're looking at that you're seeing that they're actually palestinians why would they need um soldiers around them to harvest a field um, well, they checked like oral historical accounts and like interviewed people from the village um, and checked in with like Palestinian like historical sources. Um, these people were being forced to dig a mass grave for other Palestinians that were just murdered <laughs> by that by those soldiers. Oh. So like, yeah, and the archive doesn't say that at all. Like, and you wouldn't, you know, you once you start critically reading images or like even mm -hmm. checking with like any like like the people who are actually in the images, um the truth sort of starts to come out or like, you know, the story deepens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like a very one-sided narrative. So that's I'm fighting against that and I'm fighting against like like the idea that one narrative can have authority. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Answer this to whatever degree you're, you're comfortable. Sure. 
but it's, I, I'm sure Canary Mission is one of many of these sort of like websites or, you know, sort mm-hmm. of places where it's blacklisting people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you're, you, each piece of your art is sort of um, p- pushing you in a direction where you might get blacklisted by a mm-hmm. place like this. And so I guess how do you cope with or navigate that doing this work might continue to prevent you from ever yeah um that's yeah i think about that all the time um yeah i've had these conversations too with a lot of my palestinian friends and like my collaborator Layla. um with like should we just be careful so that we can go in as much as we want or like but then we're censoring ourselves and like the people who want us censored are getting what they want um so i've sort of and you know like my whole family as supportive as they are they're always like be careful because like there are a lot of people who you know don't you know want to see harm come to you like a lot of my family members say that i shouldn't be making any political art because it's dangerous and that i should make art about the ocean instead (laughs) like i've had that critique from my family (laughs) a couple of times (laughs) Um, be safe yeah yeah yeah. so like i i don't know i just i basically decided to say fuck that and (laughs) um, i'm just not gonna censor myself because that's dumb and I, I, I just, it's dumb. I just, I don't know. Like I, like I, I'm not interested in like skirting around topics or tiptoeing around things. Like I, I'm very blunt and to the point as a person. So I'm recognize. just gonna do that. Yeah, I'm just gonna do that in my art. And like I know that's a risk, but I'm not. I'm not gonna like. That's my whole practice that goes out the window if I like mm. censor myself. Yeah. Then I'm just, I don't know, like then I'm making art about the ocean like my <laughs> uncle wants me to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Love you, uncle, but. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, shout out to Layla too. Yeah, yeah. I love you. <laughs> yeah. And you're very involved in community here. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so I work for Mizna, um, which is a contemporary Arab arts nonprofit. Um, it's based in St. Paul. Um, they are amazing. They've, uh, they're just coming up on their 20th anniversary, um, this January, which is super exciting. Um, I, um, do their program in communications. So, um, if you see stuff on like Facebook and on their website, it's probably me. Um, uh, so yeah, they, um, I like don't know where I would be as an artist without them. I, um, I like, I didn't, um, know that like you could, like you as an Arab could like really delve into like abstraction and like contemporary arts and like, like experimentalism and all of that without like going to Mizna programming. And I've been going to like their film festivals and reading since I was like 11, I think. Um, but like I have been introduced um, both like in person and like through like ideas um, to artists who like have had such a huge influence on what I do. So like, and who they feature like, is 
like insane like they were some of the first people to you know um feature Anne marie jasser's films like on a wide scale um she like premiered a, a film and she's like a big palestinian filmmaker now she's just um putting out uh like Wajib, which is this huge film. It's like getting so much critical acclaim that's playing at the film festival, which happens next week, by the way. Um, mm. <laughs> you know, um, uh, they also like have featured artists like Walid Rad, who's like huge in the Arab archival art movement. Um, and he like his early films were featured at Mizna. His work is featured in the journal and the literary journal that we put out. Um, same with like, yeah. So I'm like super influenced by their programming and mm. like the ability to have like, like, you know, experiment with expression and not necessarily like stick to like the didactics within like Arab art. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, so um yeah, they, they're doing a lot of really cool stuff for their 20th anniversary. Um, so um, next week we have our film festival at St. Anthony, Maine. Um, we have um, a Palestine-themed journal coming out in like the winter around January. Um, uh, and that's going to feature like an insane roster of writers um, that I don't think I can say who yet, but mm -hmm. it's like, I cannot believe the commissions that we're getting. Like it's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Super excited. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so exciting. Um, um, and we are also um, going to be having a huge, retrospective of art at the M next summer. Um, so like the will be, yeah, all of the art that's been featured in our literary journals. Um, and those have, you know, there are some serious, serious heavyweight artists in, in those journals. Um, they're going to be in a show in St. Paul in yeah next summer yeah it's super exciting yeah quite the Mizna spokesperson <laughs> i love them yeah m-i-z m-i-z-n-a there yeah. it is there it is and, yeah and um do you have a particular memory or like you know was there a particular film or like can you think of a, t a yep. moment where it was like oh my god this is the first time yeah. I've, I've seen this what was that yeah so i think the first um thing that i talked to you guys about was like what weapons I use yeah. and, uh, you know, weaponized evidence and narrative terrorism. And I was talking about a film that I saw that used that term. Um, and that film was by Larissa Sansour. It's called In the Future They Ate from the Finest Porcelain. Um, mm -hmm. She's an amazing Palestinian filmmaker. I saw that film at the Arab Film Fest and it changed my whole worldview mm. about like yeah. how like I can talk about like all this futurism and like you know, like, you know, uh, fiction and sort of like experimentation, like all of that sort of like connected in my mind in that, like after watching that one, one film. And I've seen like several sort of experimental films, both before and subsequent to that. But like, mm -hmm. I can point to that moment, um, as like really being foundational to how I like switched my thinking 
mm-hmm. to being much more like experimental and like exploratory. Yeah. Well, there's always that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've also uh, journeyed upon this high point. Yeah. Yeah. So I um, just uh, received the high, uh, Jerome residency at High Point Center for Printmaking. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. I'm excited. Um, yeah. So I'm going to be there for the next like nine months making work. Um, and um, I'm planning on, I've sort of stumbled on a new sort of accidental point of investigation like that I yeah I'm really excited about it's like wild um I was reading this book (laughs) as I do um (laughs) uh called Pity the Nation by Robert Fisk um and oftentimes when I read about Palestinian history I just kind of check the index to see if any of my family's names are mentioned just you know, out of curiosity. And I saw like that my last name, Abu Khadra, was mentioned. So I was like, oh, let me flip to that chapter. Um, I found out that we had a ha- like a house in Yaffa or Jaffa. Um, and it, um, so after like, I think my family had some Jewish tenants, which was like very common um, in the 1940s in Palestine. Um, And after my family had to leave because Jaffa was starting to be uh, taken over um, and uh, like violent, like violence, you know, they were being shelled. um, This tenant opened uh, the house up to the Ergun militia, which... um, (laughs) So they started storing their arms in that house and um, using that house as shelter. And then um, the leader of the Irgun, Menachem Begin, um, stopped by for tea or like coffee and biscuits like a couple of times. Um, And this like Menachem Begin is like a huge war criminal. Um, (laughs) He became like the prime minister of Israel later on. Um, he's like a horrible, horrible person. Um, but yeah, he was like in my family's house, <laughs> like, like using, I don't know, using their stuff or like using their shelter. Yeah. So I'm sort of in the process of investigating that and the implications of like, like just that moment of betrayal by a tenant or like, you know, they were friends too, I, I, I would assume. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you have someone living downstairs, there's some sort of relationship there. But like, mm. um, uh, yeah, like he just decided to let this like horrible man in mm, yeah. <laughs> to this house. And like, you know, I I don't know, like, did, did like these like... S- did the shelter help this man out? Did like this coffee and biscuit sort of thing, like help this guy out? Like, cause he's responsible for like massacres. Yeah. Um, so like, like I, yeah. What, what did that betrayal, like how, how does that implicate like wider historical moments? Um, and like this man's career and, you know, I started reading his autobiography, which is on a shelf behind me. Um, yeah and he 
says like I read like the chapter about his time in Jaffa and he says a few things about how like the best thing that would help them was like the amount of like the strength that him and his men had and like like the place where he could keep his artillery like safe which is like exactly what what was provided with my family's stolen home so it's wild yeah it's that blue one (laughs) <laughs> I have to hide it when I'm like out and about and trying to read it because I'm ashamed to be reading his autobiography because yeah. um, he's horrible and I don't want people to think that I support him. Um, yeah. <laughs> so when is this work most fun? Oh, when is it most fun? Um, when I like when everything's working, like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily in the way that like you're thinking, but like things are connecting. And then like in my brain, like the, I was talking about how I love mm. synthesizing things. So like these moments of synthesis and discovery that I, I love to have when that's working. And then that's matching up with like my ideas of how to make that happen, like in the physical world, like in the way that I make art. Um, yeah, I think it's super fun when like I figure out how to make my ideas like work in the process that I like that I'm interested in trying at the moment. Um, yeah. And also like I do some like quite a bit of like pu- public work or I have done a lot of public work and I really love working with people like on some level. It's really fun. Yeah. Collaboration for the most part is going quite well. Yeah. I mean, I, I um, don't collaborate too much with people, but like I collaborate with Leila Adala all the time and that's always really, really fun. We're both like like super kooky and also mm-hmm. um, <laughs> uh, like interested in the same things. And we like, we are very strangely connected. Like she came back from her time in Palestine was like, oh my God, I have so much to tell you. Like Mm. I have like, my dad was telling me about this like train that was running through Jaffa. And I've been like researching this train, like that this poet, this Palestinian poet, Mahmoud Darwish, like writes a poem about, and it's the one that runs through Jaffa. And I was like, get out. I've been researching that train too. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's like near the house that I like that I was just talking about that the militia like stored their stuff in. Like we were constantly like, yeah, Mm -hmm. connecting. And you know, those moments of like, I've been doing that too. Like how did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just two people. (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome. What sustains you in your your daily life? Mm. Um, Earl Grey tea. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, like I have this like hunger for information. Always, like um, that's that sustains me in terms of wanting to keep researching and connecting the dots to things, and you know, fabulating or making things up too um um friendships too like really deep friendships I have like I'm really happy to say that I have a lot of really good brown friendships right now (laughs) which are sustaining me um and um 
Um, yeah. Um, oh, community events that I go out to, like really um, strong openings or like artist talks or even like going to see Angela Davis, you know, check that off my bucket list. Um, yeah, like, yeah, those are like always keeping me going. Mm. Yeah. So how do you balance cynicism and hope? <laughs> That's really funny. Um, my mom started calling me cynical when I was like seven. <laughs> yeah. Cynical of what? Seven. I mean, I don't know. I don't remember exactly what. You knew too I was much. <laughs> at an early about, age. Yeah, I guess I knew too much. I don't know, but um, yeah. So. I am a very cynical person, I would say, but, um, I have like, I mean, to keep making work, you have to be hopeful and to keep like being a part of your community, you have to be hopeful that somehow you're going to affect change or affect the community in some way. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, me sort of like talking to myself in my head being like <laughs> nobody's like even looking at my work it doesn't even matter and then like mm. well sometimes people do look at your work like look at how many people like message you about things or ask to interview you or like you know like or like you know just you're affecting like you know the moment that your your grandma feels really proud of you mm. is is a powerful moment like you have to keep going yeah I think I'm going to start a Facebook group called the Angry Optimist Group. It takes the, I'll be the first one to join. Takes the, I'm really going to do that. Okay, great. <laughs> See you there. <laughs> what are you tired of hearing? Hmm. Um, um, I think some questions that I get that I'm just like rolling my eyes, like, why are you being an artist? why why be an artist and why why make this work which i think i've answered both of those questions like pretty well today but like you know those are big eye rolls like you know uh because i want to be an artist because it's like cool and fun and like a, an abstract way of like taking on the world um and then like why make this work because like there's horrible narratives out there to dismantle and i'm pretty like i don't know i'm feeling like the political avenues are not working right now like mm -hmm. activism is like amazing but like i i get really burnt out when i um sort of try to join those movements or help out so like this is my way of contributing so yeah. yeah. Hop off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All the people listening, what do you want to say directly to them? Oh wow. Um <laughs> Um I I would say like like um like question a lot of things, like critically think about like um the stories and narratives and um, uh, that you are told or given um, because like critical thinking is like a really important skill. And also because like, gen like with the way that, you know, colonialism is alive and well and still lives in all of the institutions that we interact with every day, um, 
there's probably a really great chance that you're not getting like the critical story and um of Mm -hmm. what's going on really um what arts are you currently taking in that's giving you life and energy to keep going um i listen to podcasts all the time um constantly (laughs) it's um uh, sometimes I get a lot of shit for it because I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, people are like, like when I had roommates, um, they'd be like, it's something's wrong if Lemmy is not listening to a podcast like when she's at home. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, or like, you know, I listen to podcasts constantly in the studio too. Um, mm-hmm. I often run out of podcasts to listen to. Um, really? It's bad. <laughs> But we're in season two. You got. Yeah. I mean, I've got. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But um, two podcasts that I've been listening to recently that I apart from yours that I really love are LeVar Burton Reads. Mm -hmm. He's so good. (laughs) (laughs) I love him. And um, the poetry podcast Verses. I don't know if you've heard of that one. It's hosted by Denez Smith and. I'm forgetting the other host's name, which I feel bad about, but they bring in all of these amazing poets and I'm, I don't necessarily identify as a poet, but like the way that poets abstract words is really interesting to me or like think about writing is really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I read a lot of poetry. Um, so I, I love, like they get into such deep conversations about like, you know, like. I think they they interviewed one poet and they they did so and so versus fear so and so versus like mm. um oh I'm forgetting their themes but they're really really good yeah and it like I get some really good gems out of that um and then of course like the poetry that I read like I just read this mind bogging bogglingly good piece of po like poetry by this woman named Noir El-Sadir and she like it's like the most like she it's like theory about like like how like psychoanalysis works and like Barts and all of these like historic like historical philosophers and then she like embeds poetry and there's a section where she would just wake herself up at three in the morning and write like whatever poem came to mind and then go back to sleep. And there's like, I don't know, that book was life-changing. I read mm. that like three times this summer. Um, yeah, it's really good. Wow. Well, where can the world find you on social media? Um, it's just my name. So Lemia Abukadra. Um, that's my handle on Instagram. Um, and my website is lemiaabukadra.com. So, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Lamia Abukadra, thank you for joining us. We thank you for having me. Been honored by this time with you <laughs> yeah. today. Thank you so much. Yeah. Fun Look conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Lamia. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
As always, Weapon of Choice Podcast is a special menu production. You can find more about us online at www.specialmenuproductions.com. That's specialmenuproductions.com. We've got all the former and past Weapon of Choice interviews there, as well as um, some of our film projects. Hey, and currently, Weapon of Choice Podcast is everywhere you can find a podcast. Everywhere, from Spotify to the SoundClouds to the the website to whatever you google weapon of choice podcast but i mean i would recommend um sticking around on soundcloud uh especially there because you can comment and interact with other folks who are following the podcast and also if you're if you're an apple user and you got the app and you got the iphone apple podcast app if you can subscribe that would make sure you're getting you're never missing an episode getting everything you need from weapon of choice and we would really appreciate it if you could continue to help us grow by giving it that five-star review and uh Those really let help. us know yeah your feedback we read it we appreciate it we uh see people in community and uh, we thank them and we're always thanking you out there for not bumping into you in person so that support goes a long way our patreon is obviously patreon.com forward slash weapon of choice podcast if you'd like to contribute one dollar or more to help keep this show growing and going and uh, we appreciate all the love tell your friends you can email us if you want to have a longer chat digitally at weapon of choice fans at gmail.com that's weapon of choice fans at gmail.com follow us on instagram at weapon of choice podcast facebook at Weapon of Choice Podcast <gasps> and Twitter at Weapon Choice Pod. Follow us everywhere. Share on Facebook. Tell your friends. Tell your lovers. Tell your mothers. Tell your cousins. Tell your aunties. Tell everybody. Tell the aliens. And uh, we appreciate all the love. We're going to keep trying to bring you those real conversations. What do we got to play us out today, Tommy? Ooh. Oh, what a good, what a good, what a good November it has been. November has been good to us in part because Mike uh, of Astro Black put out his solo record uh, a couple weeks ago. The uh, release show was amazing. Um, The energy is, it, it was unparalleled. Astro Black put out their album just this week and Bo I want to get into we want to get into some Mike's music off his solo album because it's fucking amazing M-M-Y-Y-K-K that is one word Mike M-M-Y-Y-K-K we don't need you to go online and check that out Anderson Pack's album's good but I've been bumping this Mike album non-stop a couple times a day and the first track on the album Tribe 2.0 we gotta leave you with that so dig it and enjoy here it is. Find my Here they go 
reason, despite resistance, we'll go the distance till we're beyond the sky. I'll go the distance. in the inevitable of understanding his vastness through the experiment of soulful ascension through a black man's shape shaped from divine and laughter and song drops a golden thread from the land of war a crystal king learning to love the divine in himself tender soul of a boy lives in this grown man, shaped from sun and lion and warrior and lover and healer. They will come for him because they don't understand him. And all they got to do is let him wizard in peace. But they got him running and he gives up giving up and he runs out of running out runs out of running, of running. Of running.